All right, well this morning, I'm going to need a little bit of uh, audience participation. You gotta help me out, okay? So I need you to repeat a phrase for me, okay? And the phrase is this. Wow, I didn't see that coming. All right, let's, let's try it together, all right? All together, wow, I didn't see that coming. Okay, now let's see if you can do it on cue. You ready? On cue. Wow, I didn't see that coming. Okay, now for the jokes. <laughs> Once while I was still in college, this beautiful girl came up to me in a restaurant and asked if I was single. And uh, smiling, I said, well, yes. And she thanked me and took the other chair from my table. <laughs> wow, I didn't see that coming. So two men walk into a bar. The third one ducked. Wow, I didn't see that coming. While walking down the street recently, I was attacked by a man who started throwing words at me that began with TH. I was able to dodge this, there, and then, but wow, I didn't see that coming. Okay. We're going to talk this morning about the story of Rahab. Rahab is a most unlikely woman to be a Bible hero. In fact, if her neighbors had known how her story was going to end, I think that all of them would have said, wow, I didn't see that coming. Well, when Rahab started her day, that one fateful day, uh, it seemed like any other. She may have had a house guest to say goodbye to in the morning. Rahab had a lot of house guests. Uh, she may have grabbed a bit of breakfast and then she went up on the sunny roof of her little apartment, checked on some flax that she had drying up there. And it was just another day like every other day was in Jericho. But then, unexpected strangers arrived. It's not that having men show up unannounced was really all that surprising for Rahab. Rahab may have been gathering and drying flax to make some garments that she probably sold in the marketplace, but her most stable income came from men who stopped by on a regular basis. And they paid her for the visit because Rahab was a prostitute. Now, that line of work did not make her wealthy. It certainly didn't make her respected. Her little apartment, we're told, was actually built into the giant wall that surrounded Jericho, the city's impregnable fortification. Uh, having your house in a wall probably gave you a nice view, but it wasn't considered prime real estate. Uh, if there ever was an attack, your house would not be protected by the wall. Your house was the wall. And whatever damage an attacker might hurl at the wall was probably going to end up in your living room, which I'm guessing made it difficult to get homeowner's insurance. Her house may have been high up on a wall, but her position was definitely low on the social ladder. In a time when being married was the all-important source of security for a woman, Rahab had no husband. And any self-respecting woman who did have a husband certainly didn't want her husband spending any time around a woman like Rahab. The fact that she lived in the wall, 
and that she had to sell herself to make ends meet tells us that she was not a woman of wealth or social stature. It's doubtful that she was the most refined lady either. She had seen the seamy side of life. She had come to know people, men in particular, at their worst. And she had developed a thick skin, thick enough that she could withstand the stares and the comments of angry wives that might confront her in the marketplace and, and just go on with living her life. Rahab was a survivor. She had graduated magna cum laude from the School of Hard Knocks. And so unexpected men weren't really unexpected. Unless, of course, it turned out that they were spies. And spies they were, Israeli spies who'd been sent by Joshua to scout out the territory. After their long journey in the wilderness, Israel had finally crossed into the land that God had promised long ago was going to be theirs. The only problem was that there were already others living in the land, and others who did not reverence the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others who, in fact, worshipped idols, idols like Baal, whom they believed could be appeased and controlled by things like human sacrifice. In giving their lands to Israel, God was both blessing his people, but also bringing judgment to cultures that had plunged deep into evil. And all that meant that the, the process of gaining this promised land was going to mean that Israel was going to war. It would be a war in which they were outnumbered and up against an entrenched enemy, a well-fortified enemy. And Jericho, with its massive walls, was the first obstacle on their way as they came into that promised land. So before they stepped into the fight, Joshua wanted to get a better idea of what they were up against, and so since he didn't have any drones to fly over, he sent in spies on the ground to check things out. Now, if you're a new guy in town, trying to be inconspicuous, trying to find a place to stay incognito, where could you go in a place like Jericho? Well, there, there weren't any Hilton Express hotels where you could check in under a false name. But there were prostitutes, and new guys stopping by to spend the night wouldn't draw too much attention there. And so that is what they did. They apparently asked a couple of locals where some new guys in town could maybe find a good time. And they ended up, unexpectedly, at Rahab's place. Unfortunately, in asking around, they must have also given themselves away. We don't know how. Maybe it was their accent. Someone picked up on it. Maybe it was something about the way they were dressed. Maybe it was just that they asked too many questions about how Jericho worked. I mean, the folks were aware that the Israelites were out there. They knew they were coming their way. And, and big wall or not, everybody was a little on edge watching out for the first signs of danger. Whatever it was, these strangers got spotted for who they were. They were spies. And word got to the city officials. And, and alarmed, they started hunting for the intruders. And that hunt took them straight to Rahab's house. So when Rahab had started her day with her morning cup of coffee, she never expected that by the end of the day, she was going to be caught up in a story of espionage and intrigue. While she may have been surprised to find herself directly involved, 
she wasn't too surprised to hear that the army of Israel was heading their way. Rahab had been hearing those rumors for weeks. And she'd been thinking about more than just the Israeli encroachment. She'd been thinking about the God of Israel. She'd heard the stories of what God had done in Egypt to set those people free. And she'd come to recognize that there is more in play than just the armies of men. And as we see in her story, Rahab had apparently already decided that if and when the time came that she had the opportunity to give allegiance, she was ready to stake her claim with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. How do we know that? Well, it's not hard. She lied to a king. The king, having gotten word that the spies were at Rahab's house, uh, sends over homeland security, and uh, they demand that Rahab turn these guests over to them. Here are the first words of Rahab that are recorded in scripture. It comes out of Joshua chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. She says, well, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So Rahab told a lie. She told a big one. Pretty gutsy move. Why take the risk? Well, we find that out when we read the conversation that she had with the spies after she had sent Homeland Security on its way. This comes from starting at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Now, if you've ever gotten embroiled in the fine points of Christian ethics, you will recognize that Rahab's story is one that often gets debated. I mean, Rahab told a lie. Was that okay? There are different schools of thought when it comes to the rightness of telling an untruth. There are some that hold to what is called absolutism, absolutists. Uh, they believe that all lies are always wrong regardless of the situation. Then there's a, another viewpoint, and so they would say that Rahab did the wrong thing. Right? It, it may have worked out, but she really did do the wrong thing. And then there are conflicting absolutists. They would say that lying is always wrong, but sometimes in a fallen world, believers are left with no other choice. David French says, evil often leaves virtue with few good choices. 
And they would say that at such times, we have to choose the lesser of two evils, still acknowledging that it is wrong, and then we need to ask forgiveness for that wrong, even though it's a lesser wrong, for that wrong that has been committed. Then there are hierarchical absolutists who believe that lying is wrong, but that there are some wrongs that are even more wrong than other wrongs. And that if you commit a lesser wrong to prevent a greater wrong, you in fact haven't done wrong. So saving a life from murder is of higher value than telling the truth. In fact, they would say that there are some people who are not owed the truth due to the evil they intend to do with it. So, for instance, if an axe murderer shows up at your house and you're hiding the children someplace and the axe murderer says, where are the children hiding? They would say that individual does not deserve the truth because all they mean to do with it is evil. And so they would say you are upholding a higher good to not tell the truth. Then there are situationalists who don't really worry about any set order of right and wrong. They just think that each situation has to be weighed on its own merits and... Uh, Make up your mind as to what you think is best in the moment. Now, I'm pretty sure that Rahab had never taken any college-level courses on ethics. Uh, she would have had no idea what hierarchical absolutism meant. She was just a lady who had learned to live by her wits. And she made a decision in the heat of the moment to stick with the God of Israel. In the heat of the moment, with police at the door and spies on the roof, she did the one thing that felt consistent with that choice. She said whatever she had to say to save the spies. Of course, she wasn't just saving spies. She wanted to save herself and her family, too, right? That's what she says to the spies. I, I have been good to you when you come. When God gives you the victory, would you please be good to me as well? And so they agree. They give her a secret code a sign. They say that when the invasion occurs, she is to hang a red cord in her window and that they will have told the warriors that are attacking that when they see the apartment that has the red cord in the window that they are to spare everyone in that house. And so she does. And they do. And when the walls of Jericho fall, it appears that some of the wall remains because Rahab's house is spared. And when the soldiers advance, those within Rahab's house are spared. And then as far as the Old Testament record is concerned, that is the last we hear of Rahab. But we get this fascinating epilogue in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel in the New Testament. Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus because he wants to establish that Jesus was a member of the royal tribe of Judah the line of Father Abraham and King David. And if you would care to test your phonics this afternoon, you can try reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. It begins easy enough. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's the shorthand genealogy, okay? That skips a whole lot of stuff. But... Then, verse 2 launches into this more granular genealogy of who begat who. And there are some doozies. Uh, there are 42 names in all. Uh, names like Hezron, Aminadab, Obed, and Zerubbabel. 
they are almost all male names since the genealogy was usually traced through the masculine side of the family. But there are five women mentioned in the genealogy. And do you want to guess who the second woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is? And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, two things stand out to me about this little verse right here. The first is why anyone would name someone Salmon. <laughs> the second thing is that Rahab is named. The former prostitute who is listed as an integral link in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Are you ready for your cue? Wow, I didn't see that coming. In fact, Matthew seems to go out of his way to make sure that her name is known. I don't know if you've ever done genealogical research, but if you do, sometimes you find people hiding in the family tree that is kind of embarrassing to admit that they're there. You know, the folks that you would just as soon kind of keep hiding in the leaves of the family tree. Rahab, to me, seems like one of those that you might be inclined to keep out of sight. I mean, she's a Gentile. She's a prostitute. She's a woman. In this male genealogy, wouldn't you just kind of keep her out of sight? And yet, Matthew makes a point to include her name. And it turns out it's not just Matthew who seems determined to name names. The writer of Hebrews does it as well. Matthew names her as part of the world's greatest genealogy. Hebrews includes her in its list of greatest people of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. You know, he could have at least left out the prostitute part. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In fact, James names her as well as an illustration of what faith in action looks like. Here's James chapter 2. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. It's like they can't let go of that. Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So out of the entire Old Testament, all of the courageous acts of faith that James could have named, the one that he chooses is Rahab. And maybe that is one of the big unexpecteds about Rahab, that she came to hold such a place of honor. So what can we learn from the unexpected journey of Rahab? Well, what matters to God, I think, are not the missteps of our past, but is our faith steps in the present. Rahab had plenty of her past that wasn't pretty. For a long time, her past had formed her identity. 
everybody in town knew who Rahab the prostitute was. Rahab knew who she was. She knew the name that she carried. But more importantly, she believed in who God was. She believed that he was bigger and stronger than even the fortified and seemingly unbreakable wall that she literally lived within. She believed that choosing him, risking to choose him, to side with his people was a surer path to life than simply staying where she was. And believing that, she acted. Maybe she didn't do everything right, but she did it with a full heart. She staked her life and everyone she loved on a little red cord hanging in a window. Actually, I'm going to guess that there were red cords hanging in every window in her apartment. But that choice changed forever the course of her life and the generations that she became a mother to. You know, as I was thinking about this story of Rahab, it dawned on me that her story has some striking parallels to the story of the Passover. At, at least to me, it seems like it. You remember what God did in the Passover? His people were enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. Pharaoh held all the power. There was no way of escape. And yet Moses was sent and empowered by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and to back it up with that series of plagues against Egypt. And each one of them gained in severity. And after each one, Moses said again, let God's people go. And every time, Pharaoh refused. The final plague was the most disastrous of all. God proclaimed that on a given night, an angel of death, was going to move through the land and take the life of every firstborn. With one exception. For the Israelites, God told them to gather in their homes for a special lamb dinner. And they were to take some of the blood from that lamb and they were to mark the doorpost on the outsides of their house. And he said, when the death angel passes over, all who are within the house that has been marked by the blood of the lamb will be spared. The angel of death would pass over them. And the outcome from that final plague was that Israel was finally freed from slavery. Think about Rahab. She too found herself living in a place condemned to judgment and death seemingly with no way out. She, too, was given a sign. Not the red blood of a lamb, but a red cord hanging in her window. And as with Israel on the night of Passover, those who took shelter in the house behind the red cord were passed over. They were saved. As a result, Rahab was saved, and if you read the genealogy, she became the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. The one known as the Lamb of God. The spies stopping by Rahab's house that day were totally unexpected by Rahab. 
but I don't think it was an accident. God knew Rahab. He knew how she made her living. He knew the ways that she had been used and abused. He knew the ways that she had used others. The wives whose hearts had been broken because of Rahab and her services. But he also knew that Rahab was a woman who had a heart that was ready to turn to him in faith. Not only did her turn of heart change her life, it changed her family. Rahab couldn't do anything about her past. But what she did was respond to an offer of life with an act of faith. She hung the cord in the window. You know, that really is the story of the gospel, isn't it? People with messy stories, messy pasts like you and me, people that have been labeled by others or have labeled ourselves as unworthy, damaged goods, with things behind us that we may be ashamed of, but we can't undo that past. And maybe we don't even know how to get out of our present. It feels like being trapped in that giant wall. And yet, unexpectedly, God approaches. And he can approach in a thousand ways. Maybe it was a friend who shared with us about Jesus and told us their story of coming to faith that first caused our hearts to say, maybe that could be my story too. Or we were listening to the radio while driving in the car and, and we heard a speaker on the radio talking about this thing called the gospel. Or we were watching something on TV or on YouTube or we read a book or we were in a hotel, and on a particularly dark night, we picked up the Gideon Bible that was laying there and began to read it for ourselves. Or maybe one night we were just watching a breathtaking sunset, and suddenly something spoke deep in our heart and said, this can't be all an accident. There has to be someone there. I wonder if he would want to know me. I wonder if I could get to know him. And suddenly we heard an offer that sounded too good, too simple to even be true. Like saving your life by hanging a cord in the window. It's the message that the Apostle Paul gave to a terrified jailer one night. After an earthquake, when all the doors in the jail had sprung open and the jailer was, sure, was certain that he would forfeit his own life for all those who had escaped. And crying out, he said to Paul, he said, what must I do to be saved? Here's what Paul said. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. It's as simple as that. It's like hanging the cord in the window, putting a little splotch of blood on the doorposts, and saying that God has done something for me in Jesus that by a simple act of faith, I can claim as my own. And it becomes a starting point of a whole new life. 
That is the good news of Jesus. That freedom from the shame of our past and the promise of life for an eternal future is all held in a simple step of faith, placing faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God. But as the Apostle James said and illustrated with Rahab's life, real faith is exhibited by real action. Rahab didn't just say that she believed God. Rahab hid the spies. And that's one of the reasons why when you hear me talk about this sort of stuff, you'll hear me usually talk about a person being a follower of Jesus and not simply talk about them being a Christian. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian. I will certainly identify myself as a Christian, but, but Christian is just kind of a label. And it means all kinds of different things to different people. Nowadays, for a lot of folks, it says something about politics more than it does about Jesus. It can be just a label that talks about a worldview I approve of. But to say that I'm a follower of Jesus implies that you can see what I believe by watching how I live. I have a faith that moves me to action, which, of course, is a scary claim to make. Because we have to ask ourselves, how accurate is the picture? To be a Christian is to live a Jesus life, not simply to wear a Jesus label. It means that we move in a new direction. Rahab hid the spies. She hung the cord. She joined the family of God. She turned from the story of her past and she chose to live into the story of God's people. I uh, entitled this series, Unexpected, When God Changes Our Plans. And I can't talk about this without asking if you are perhaps one of those who has never yet said yes to Jesus. I mean, you come to church or you watch online, and at one level you'd say, I, I like the label. I, I like a lot of the ideas that Christianity has, but the fact is, I have never yet personally put my faith in Jesus Christ. I've never really hung the cord. Nothing about my life has yet said I am a follower of his. There are two responses I think we can have to this. One is what I would call the seeker response. That is a person who says, I've not yet said yes to Jesus, but I really do want to know more. Now, I've run into people who say, well, I just have a few questions. And the fact is, they don't really have questions. They have excuses for not making a decision. But if you're a genuine seeker, and you say, this talk about Jesus is interesting, and I really do want to know more to see if this really is the place I should put my faith, that's a good place to be. And if that's you, there are resources available. Uh, if you want to get some help with that, you can come and talk to me after the service. If you're online, we have folks monitoring online. You can go ahead and put a comment in there. I'd like more information. You can click the Connect card online. You can stop by the Welcome Center, fill out a card, and say, I need to know more about Jesus. If you want, there's a website I did a bunch of years ago called thefaithpuzzle.org. You can go there. There's a whole discussion and lots of resources. So if you're an honest seeker, I want to encourage you to seek to get the answer, 
The other response is the ready response. It's the person that says, I've not yet said yes, but I'm ready. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Some of us get right up to that point, and we say, yeah, this is what I should do, but mm, do I take that step? I just want to encourage you, if God has put this on your heart, if he's been drawing you, take the step. Maybe there are things in your past and, and you're just struggling to say, am I ready to leave it behind? But maybe today, the Lord is saying, it's time. And if that's you, I want to invite you. I want to ask all of us, just bow our heads for a minute, because I don't want you to leave here. And if you're at home watching, you bow your head right where you're at. It would be a terrible thing for God to be knocking on your heart's door, for you to be standing right at that point, and to walk away without making the decision, to fail to hang the cord in the window. So bow your head. And if this is you, I want you in your own heart to quietly pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, you know my past. You know that in myself, I don't deserve your love or your heaven. But I'm coming to you now in faith, believing that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me. I invite you to become the Savior and the Lord over my life. I want to hang the cord in the window of my heart. I want to be yours, Lord. I give myself to you now. Amen. Hey, if that was you, would you let us know? Because that's the start of a journey. You know, for Rahab, the journey didn't end with hanging the cord. That was really just the start. She went on the journey with God's people from that point on. She went through the wars they went through. She, she joined. So if that's you, let us know. Let me ask another question for the rest of us who have taken that step. And that question is, are you still walking after Jesus? Like I said, Rahab did more than just hang the cord. She went on the journey. There were battles to be fought. She was there. There was territory to be claimed. She was there. She was on the journey, and sometimes we start well, but somewhere along the line, we start lagging behind. We get distracted, we take a detour, we stumble and land on our face. And maybe you need a few moments this morning to let God know that you're ready to follow again. He's waiting for you. You're part of his tribe. He just wants you to catch up. I want to finish this morning with a wonderful story about a new friend that is all about taking a big step of faith to follow Jesus. I never really expected that the outcome of my second Bible study class with DCC would be getting rid of um, the majority of my books I've been collecting over the past three decades three decades of basically wandering in the wilderness trying to find my spiritual path. I got connected with DCC initially on Easter of last year listening to the tape sermon and 
uh, Pastor Tim, I love his sense of humor, and, and he just hooked me with the message of his sermon that day. Um, I'm a very, tend to be a very analytical person, and how he broke down some of the things that would make you wonder, if this is a legend, this doesn't line up with how legends are created, if this is not true. So it just really resonated with me. And I was, at that point, watching and listening to his sermons um, through the summer with my husband. Um, and then I found out the women's Bible study, which I'd never done a women's Bible study before. And it was the first time that I had opened a Bible I was given when I was 19 years old. It was embossed and everything with my name on it. The first time I had opened it probably in two decades. So getting to know Jesus with Beth Moore's help and getting to watch videos where she's in Israel and just really hearing and feeling the story of Jesus for the first time in my life was um, incredibly powerful. That awareness just grew my belief so much. Um, and then the second study was Priscilla Shire's um, The Armor of God. And that study opened up, it built so perfectly on my, my new understandings with um, the life of Jesus and everything he did for us and built on the, the, um, the armor that we are given through God's grace. The first two lessons of that six, seven, six lesson series talked about deceptions and the, the evils constantly trying to distract us. And it landed so strongly with me as I'm sitting in my office and looking around. I love books. <laughs> I love books. I've gotten rid of many books in the years through many travels and many moves, but I had my favorite books. And a lot of my favorite books have been spiritual New Age books, because that's where I spent a lot of my path in my 30 years of wandering the wilderness, wilderness and spiritual New Age books. And it just completely resonated with me on the deceptions, the, the tiny truths, but the big deceptions keeping me from the real path, the truth of it. And I looked, because again, I love books, I don't like getting rid of things that I, but it's, it landed, I had to get rid, it was time to clear this. I knew these were, these were false things that I needed to clear. So as I'm pondering what that process is gonna look like for, for the week of pondering, I'm getting waves of nausea, which I don't get waves of nausea, so it was just kind of an odd thing. But but I knew, I knew inside me it's because things are upset. They don't want to leave my space. They want to stay right where they're at. So it, it came down to, I'm getting a big old plastic garbage bag, my black garbage bag, and on a Friday morning, I loaded up my garbage bag. I had CDs, I had manuals, multiple books. It was a heavy bag. So in the process of hiking through the house and through the kitchen, I'm going through the kitchen, my blender turned on. That has never happened before, and I just knew, and I, I'm praying this, this whole time, please, Jesus, please just release this from me. Just repenting for my lost ways, I, I understand, I know the truth, I understand. 
the blender goes on. I'm like, okay, I go and turn the blender off and uh, just keep praying and crying and praying and crying. And so get it all held out to the garage, dump it off in the garage. And I had the most overwhelming feeling of joy and lightness I've ever experienced in my life. It was the most powerful thing. And I just knew, I just knew that Jesus was with me and that he was releasing me and forgiving me for my ways of wandering for 30 years. That was this new start. It was like my eyes were open, my heart was freed, and everything just keeps building and I keep learning and I feel like a little toddler learning more and more and more, um, but I just can't absorb it fast enough, you know. I'm doing things online through the church, and I'm doing the uh, the current study, and it's just been absolutely wonderful. My husband actually said the words. He said, "You mean like you're born again?" I'm like, "I guess so. I guess it's kind of born again." Thank you. I guess that I, I get what that means. Yeah, that's what it feels like. So, that's my sport story. I never expected to clear out so much of my um, my my deceptive treasures that I've had that um, freed me in ways I never thought possible. So, yeah.